So the one thing we can look at history and we can say, here's typically what happens in history. Here's the averages. Uh, here's this and here's that. What we can't say is based on those patterns, what's going to happen in the future. Now, what we, we can say some things, though. We can, we can understand the basic rules of economics. We can understand supply and demand. We can understand a lot about what causes major recessions and major bear markets. And we're going to talk about that today, hopefully. Once more into the breach, dear friends. Else fill the wall up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls. Uh, welcome to another exciting episode of the Personal <laughs> Wealth Coach. Sometimes, and it is exciting. Sometimes more exciting for us than for the rest of the world. And people go, why oh, are yes. you guys so excited? Well, we don't know if we're on the air sometimes. Uh, and we don't know if we're about to say something incredibly stupid that will haunt us wait, for the rest of our lives. Or, or maybe it's more like, we know we're about to say something incredibly stupid and we're constantly keeping ourselves from doing it. Oh, maybe. So, you know, the future, um, well, uh, it predictions are really tricky, especially about the future. And um, yeah, yeah. The future's okay, just give, not what it used to be. And give, like give that. a, give us, give a side for that. I mean, you got it. Yogi Berra. I'm, I'm misquoting him twice. Oh, good. That's, that's yeah, true. I, I paraphrased two times. Uh, Yogi Berra. Actually, the first guy that recorded to have said that, and not exactly the same words, was Sir Isaac Newton. Forecasting is particularly difficult when it is about the future. Mm. So, smartest guy, arguably one of the smartest guys who ever lived said that, so that's cool. Anyway, this is the Personal Wealth Coach, and this is a radio program where we talk about things economic. Sometimes uh, a podcast, too. Yes, and uh, it's sometimes a podcast where we don't know what it is, but as usual, we're confused. Um, we talk about things to do with investing and building a portfolio. We do not give advice about what you should buy and sell specifically because that would be investment advice. And the name of the personal wealth coach is also the name of a registered investment advisory firm based in Salado, Texas. And it's registered with the United States Securities and Exchange Commission, which implies in no way that they approve of us. They don't approve, just period. They don't. Actually, well, actually, they don't approve of much of anything, which is yeah. their job. Um, and we don't give investment advice on the radio program. We do give educational information, and the educational information we give has been obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to the accuracy or completeness of said information. See, you can see that really quickly. You've done almost all the disclosures yourself. You got one more. Let me see if you can. We don't pay for this radio program. We don't get paid to do this radio program or podcast, as the case may be. Um, we do have, um, a, an interest in it in that apparently a lot of our clients listen to it. And so it's a way of communicating with our clients. And occasionally we hear from people who aren't clients who have listened to it. And on extremely rare occasion, they, they ask if we would manage their money, but that's, we've done a cost benefit analysis on that and concluded it is advertising. Uh, our time isn't worth this. Yes. Our time is worth more than this. That's right. That's not so, why we do it. We're hoping to yeah. actually educate the population, which is, it's not, I, we don't mind it if people become our clients, just to put that lightly. Uh, but it, that's not why we're doing this. We want you guys to understand what's going on in the world. Uh, yeah. That's, that's the only last piece is that we do pay for advertising on KTEM 1400, which is the same 
station that broadcasts this, but the advertising that we're paying for is advertising for the radio program, which the studio also does in partnership with us. So it gets our name out there. It does get our name out there as well. So, you know, it occurred to me that we are ESG. It depends on how you label that. Well, that's the whole thing with ESG. Yeah. So we are ESG. We're economics, um, securities, uh huh, and regulated by the government. Um, I thought you were going to say we, goobers. The last well, that's true. Be well, that goobers. would probably be more accurate to say we're goobers. We're econ- economic, uh, stock oriented goobers. Yes, ESG, hundred percent. Securities, securities oriented. Securities goobers. Oriented. Yes, yes. yes so, okay. so we're ESG. We can say we're ESG. I mean, I've got lots to talk about on the ESG front later on okay. i've got we lots, got, we we got, got a lot stack of, of questions man we've got questions good questions too coming out yes. of our ears um, well or at least out of our emails <laughs> starts with an e um but before we get to that what's what's happened in the market this week some major stuff well it was an hysteric week a historic week in that the standard poor's 500 stock index dow jones industrial average both crossed into official bear territory except that there's no official to officiate uh, where a bear is, but it's kind of the media kind of generally says, okay, when it's 20%, when the, when the indices, uh, not counting dividends reinvested are down 20% from their recent peak, then we're in a bear market. So the news media was full of pundits, um, talking a lot or writing a lot about that we're in a bear market and what the implications are of a bear market is if the difference between 19% and 20% was that big. I, let me, let me say this clearly. There was a time when the spelling of a word didn't have rules around it. You could just write it however mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. wanted to. And then we had dictionaries made uh, and these dictionaries came out and basically self appointed correctors of everyone else's spelling. Mm-hmm. That, which seems pretty arrogant on the surface of it. I'm going to tell everyone else how to spell these words. You guys don't know what you're doing, but we accepted it. And so now when you play games like Scrabble, you can look it up on a dictionary, but there's not a standard dictionary that everybody goes to anymore. There's a lot of them. There used to be several standards. Johnson did a book, a dictionary, and then Webster's came out. So you could go and look at a standard and say, this is what the definition of this word is. I think that standard now is Google. Would you agree with that? Probably either Google or Microsoft. So when you do a search for what is a bear market, Google answers. Now they are answering using someone else's voice. Uh, In this case, CNBC is, according to Google, the highest authority on what a bear market is, at least at the moment. And it says a bear market is a decline of 20% or more from recent highs. It doesn't tell you how recently you should be checking, just recent highs. Um, It's not a very very specific definition. Yeah. So recent highs being... The most recent highs, the highs of the the highest it got recently, maybe it's hard to, but, but that's what we're saying is that there's not a universal official bear market, except that sort of there is. So unofficially, officially we're in a bear market there. Mm. Yeah. Well, there's a consensus. Yes. We've, we've all sort of agreed, but I could call this a turkey market if I wanted to. There we go. Nobody preventing me from doing that. Yeah. But then you You'd have to be a pundit 
to to officially designate a bear market, I think. Um, all my puns leave dents. That makes sense. Anyway, we are in a bear market, which for whatever it's worth, does the S&P 500 stock index is down 23.33% from its high, I think it was January 3rd. Uh, it's down 11.8% from a year ago. It's still up 25% from this time three years ago. And I think up about 50% from where it was in, two years ago in March and January 20 and March 2020. Um, so what's the big deal? Well, the deal is we have these from time to time. Bears. Yeah. In fact, we used to have them about every four years. And I am of the opinion it's a really good thing to have. Yes. And, and, and the reason it's a really good thing to have, it's kind of like a forest fire. If you go a long time without a forest fire, you get a lot of dry stuff built up on the floor of the forest and so on. And we experimented with that across the national forest by stopping forest fires. And when you do finally get an uncontrollable forest fire, because it will be uncontrollable at some point because of the amount of dry wood and stuff built up in the forest, it really does a lot of damage. So going a long time without a bear market or without a recession is not at all good for the market or the economy. Is it unpleasant? Oh, absolutely. But it tends to shake out the stupid stuff. Uh, there, There is an abundance of stupid stuff at any given moment in, in, in a market. There's a superabundance when we get into long-running bull markets. We get zombie companies. Yeah. And there are zombie companies out there. Uh, uh, Morningstar listed quite a long number of them, quite a long list of them. Now, let's give companies, a definition of a zombie company real well, quick. A, a, a zombie company is a company whose debt service exceeds its profits. In other words, if they took all their profits and they turned them around and put them into just paying for interest rate, their interest and their principal that they have to pay off on loans, they couldn't do it. So they survive by borrowing more money. And if interest rates are low enough and loaners are dumb enough, they continue to loan to these companies with the thought that sooner or later, this company will make a profit. Now, when did we last see that? We saw a lot of it in the 1990s, and DR Coop is probably dot com. Yeah. The, the dot coms who weren't making money had no plans by which they would make money. But we're still functioning and they had, the, when you hear about burn rate, that means they're going through the money they borrowed or investors have given them and they're not making a profit. There are, there were a bunch of those last year, uh, a bunch, which is a economic terms, yes. which means it's a substantially large. Number. It's a highly technical term, a bunch, uh, but we use it regularly. Do we have a bottom in this bear market? Probably not, but you never know. Uh, bear markets are... Uh, weird uh, things uh, like everything else. We'll have a bottom eventually, but we typically we, we may not be there historically. Yet. Yeah, we may historically not be there, yet. there is a panic that takes the bear market down substantially. Which, by the way, it did. There was a sudden sell-off on Thursday uh, of this week, which could have been the panic. Except the there's an index called the VIX that uh, indicates just exactly how panicked people are. I'm not sure how they figure that out, but they do. It's, it's a volatility and, index. It looks at so, uh, uh, ranges of movements up and down and, and, well, it, and it all of the stocks of the market. It, it had room to peak on Thursday, but then it stabilized on the rest of Thursday and Friday, which means that there is no major selling panic, which means it's probably not the end of the bear market. Uh, the end of a bear market historically has normally been 
when the people who are very, very nervous and very, very scared, but they're not selling and they're gritting their teeth and they're hanging on by their fingernails, finally throw in the towel and sell, that is an indication that they're at the bottom. That, is, that has a term for it. It's called capitulation. When yep. you see capitulation in the market, it means that suddenly it's like all the strings got cut at once and you see a free fall for a certain period of time that kind of stabilizes. We, we saw a little bit of that on Thursday, mm-hmm. but then we had a movement upward on Friday and that's not normal for bottom. Usually at a bottom, you see a drop on Friday because there's a bunch of news that could come out over the weekend that could hurt you. So we on saw that hand. up. Oh, wait a minute. We, how many hands do we have? Let's, I've, I've got I at gotta, least two. I got to take a shoe off. Hold on a second. Yeah. Go ahead. On the other hand, picking the bottom point in a bear market is not a science. So every bear market is a little different. Um, and some of them are a lot different. I, I, don't know. In, I don't know what you're talking about. I can call the bottom of every bear market that we've had over the last hundred years. Yeah, but not, in, not when it happened or before the fact. Well, yeah, well, before the fact, well, you're, now you're getting into the prediction thing again. I can call a bear market and where the bottom is after it was, happens. Was, yeah, was, after it, Yeah, it was. Yeah, so, you know, prediction, predictions are easily the easiest when they're about the past. But those are yeah. post-dictions. <laughs> <not. laughs> Go ahead. So, what we've got is a bear market and... That's just the reality of it. the 10-year treasury note did something odd, though, this week. Um, it bounced around. Well, actually, not as bad, odd as what the, the oil prices did, but the, the 10-year treasury note bobbed around like a yo-yo. The Fed announced, obviously, a 0.75% increase in their base rate. Now, that was the big headlines. That's supposedly what scared the market, it, and not just the U.S. market, all over the world. It, this happened. Um, and, and to, to show that they were serious about dealing with inflation, um, which by the way, is now worse in the United Kingdom than it is here. Um, so it's an interesting thing. This is a different set of inflation than we've seen in anybody's lifetime that I know of. This is a different, um, everything than we've seen from, and I've only been doing this 40 years. And before that, I was an investor. So I actually remember all the way back to the 1973 bear market, 73 through 75. And, and this is different. So the one thing we can look at history and we can say, here's typically what happens in history. Here's the averages. Uh, here's this and here's that. What we can't say is based on those patterns, what's going to happen in the future. Now, what we, we can say some things up. We can, we can understand the basic rules of economics. We can understand supply and demand. We can understand a lot about what causes major recessions and major bear markets. And we're going to talk about that today, hopefully. Um, let's see, the oil. We talked about oil prices. Oil prices, West Texas uh, Intermediate Crude Oil fell 9% to $110, which is good. Even, that, even Brent came down 7%. Right. So I am... Uh, I'm $110, by the way, per barrel is pretty close to what was predicted before Russia invaded Ukraine. Right. So, yeah, it's uh, gasoline and diesel prices are going to be high. And the reason gasoline and diesel prices are so high is because Russian diesel and gasoline is 
very much unavailable in the European Union right now and other places. And so the price went up because of the law of supply and demand. What's the law of supply and demand? When demand goes up and supply goes down, prices go up. That is, you, you can't mess with that one. That's reality. And we have a drop in supply of petroleum because Russia is being nasty and naughty. And we have an increase in demand because we're coming out of the pandemic in the Western world and we're burning more fuel. And that's the I've big cause of inflation. A couple of, couple of upper, other things that, I mean, why is the oil price, why are they going, why is it going down right now? The war is going on. Why, what's going on? Well, there's some answers to that. I know it's, it's in weird. Oklahoma. Um, answers is in Oklahoma. Yeah, the, the answer is in Cushing, Oklahoma. That's one of the places. I was actually going to go to the Baker Hughes report on okay. the rig count. Uh, well, you I, can use Baker and I'll use Cushing. Okay. Uh, the rig count. So you're talking about the amount of oil we have on hand. It's like how much, mm-hmm. how much is sitting in the tank? Well, yeah, not on hand. If you get oil on your hands, it's, it's really sticky. And, but you can right. tell if it's sweet or not. I don't recommend it. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to get crude with you. (laughs) Told you all my puns, all my puns leave dense. Uh, (laughs) All right. So uh, last week we had about 874 rigs online in North America, uh, which was up by about uh, the last week. We were up about 12 rigs from the week before we'd been flat for a while. Uh, well, this week we're at 896. That's 22 more rigs online this week. And this is what I was talking about last week is that the rigs are coming online faster right now. All the prep work that needs to be done, they've got to move equipment out there. All that stuff has to take place to get oil wells functional again. Even when you're talking about fracking, you have to do refreshing. It takes time and we're limited on manpower, woman power, people power. So you're saying the rig rate. Yeah, the is rig critical. rate. It's been rigged. So you, you, I'm saying you I don't know if you can trust the rig numbers. They are by definition. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so what does that mean? A year ago we had 587 rigs functional according to Baker Hughes. These are rotary rigs. We're not talking about fracking here. These are the ones that you see pumping up and down. And they're not even the ones that you would normally see on the sides of the road. They're the big, big ones. Uh, Baker Hughes has, is measuring the more like the field that the rig is in than the rig itself. Uh, so 896 up 22 is phenomenal. Uh, a year ago, just to give you a, a comparison, how many rigs are in the Gulf of Mexico, according to Baker Hughes? Well, a year ago, there was supposed to be 13, and now there's supposed to be 15. Anybody that goes on a flight from Houston knows that there's a lot more than 15 oil rigs in the Gulf of Mexico. They're talking about kind of oil fields and a conglomerate of these things. Um, and, And what that comes down to is we're having an incredibly fast upward movement in the number and of pumpers and the capacity that we have to produce oil. Uh, we're not at capacity yet in our refineries. So we're importing more crude oil right now than we had for, have for several years at the top of the market or really high in the market. We're bringing crude oil in because it's, that's the most profitable time to refine it. And so all of that's good news for the long run in that 
our capacity is coming back. We had about 1,200 rigs going, according to Baker Hughes, um, when uh, the fracking boom was at its peak. So just to get back to there, we need about another 300 rigs to come online, which is about what we've done over the last year. So bringing another 300 online, our capacity is up. We're starting to see the oil prices come down. That's all good news. Um, and I jumped in there because we were talking about oil, but have you finished with the market? Well, I talked about oil. I talked about, oh, the tre treasury. Uh, I mentioned that in passing. I didn't get into the United States treasury note uh, ended the week at 3.238%. Now, why is that important? Because at first it's the benchmark for loaning in the United States. And it's up very substantially from where it was at the beginning of the year and certainly wildly higher than it was a year ago, which is showing up in interest rates across the board. Um, the average 30-year mortgage is now up to 5.85%. I think, no, 5.58%. I'm a little listexic. And that is looks like it's slowing down the home starts and home purchases a little bit, which is good. Um, the uh, the positive yield curve is still in place. It's a, not a very positive yield curve, which worries some people because some people like to worry. Uh, the 30-year... Oh, that, uh, that, that worries me when you say that. I need, I, hold on a minute. I'm a little triggered. Just that. Well, in the newsletter, I miswrote. You miswrote? Yeah, I, it says 30 year, 30 year note in the newsletter, and actually it's a 30 year bond. Yeah. It's at 3.273%, which makes it higher than the 3.238% at 10 years, and then 3.184% at two years. Now, why is it important? Between two years and 30 years, if interest rates go up as the duration or the, or the maturity gets longer, that's called a positive yield curve. And a positive treasury yield curve historically has indicated that we are in the next year very, like, very unlikely to have a recession. Yeah. So uh, it's a good sign for the economy that it's still positive. We haven't inverted yet. Right. It isn't very positive. It's, it's flat, which scares people. It's almost flat. But it is staying positive, and it's staying positive with a great deal of enthusiasm, which I like. Uh, now, when you look at those rates, and then you come all the way back down to the fact that the short-term Fed rate, the one that was raised this week, hang on, 1.75%. Short-term rates are still at 1.75%. And if you have had any experience with bank deposits or short-term rates or T-bills, you realize that is still astonishingly low. Short-term borrowing, rate, borrowing rates are very, very low. The market is not reacting to the fact that short-term borrowing rates are too high because they're not. In an environment that we have right now where if you use the core PCE index, I know that sounds like Greek to some people, um, but that's the one the Fed uses. To determine what real inflation is, which is a little over 6%, if you can borrow money at 1.75% while inflation is running along at 6%, you're doing pretty good. The bank, whoever you borrowed that money from, is in effect paying you 4.25% to borrow the money. Now, when the short-term interest rates get as high as inflation, that's neutral. When short-term interest rates get above inflation, 
that is going to slow the economy down. Uh, so, frankly, the people who are panicking because the Federal Reserve raised interest rates, short-term interest rates, 0.75%, you must be kidding. Uh, we're still, the, the short-term interest rates the Fed has are still what we call stimulative. They're still stimulating the economy. So they're not stimulative for the zombie companies that can't afford to pay the higher interest. They're not stimulative compared to uh, people that are used to getting nearly free money. But this is a pretty clear statement here. Um, the high end of the average 30-year mortgage right now is about six and a quarter. The low end is still about four and a half. Six and a quarter as a percentage for an interest rate on a mortgage sounds extremely high because because a couple of years ago it was less than half of that. But when you look back through history, six and a quarter is an extremely low rate. People are used to having money easy when it's slightly harder, but still easy. They look at it as a pain. It's still stimulative. It still should cause people to be able to afford a home if they can negotiate the price down. That's the big if. Um, but that was kind of a a, a, a wander around on well, what you okay. were talking about. That's it's what we're talking about. That's that's good. We we have some questions, and I want to get to the questions, but I want to get the big thing said that I need to that I would like to get said for the next two hours here. If we don't say anything else, wait a minute. United we're not going to say anything else. Well, we are going to say a lot of it's things. It'll be say. very boring if we don't talk. It's just just saying. Yeah, I got you. Okay. Uh, right, the the United States. What's different about this situation right now, as opposed to the late nineteen nineties or two thousand seven? just before a major recession and a major bear market, uh, or 1973 for that matter, um, U.S. households are sitting on a record level by, by percentage of total income of savings. Now, yeah, we, we, there's actually some questions on that and we can talk about it a little bit. Sure, if you're uh, very low education and been unemployed a long time, and you are were in poverty before the pandemic, and you're probably still in poverty, and you probably don't have a lot of money in the bank. But you're also probably not listening to this radio program. Can the, the the total savings in the bank or money market fund cash is still very very high in the United States. The other side of that coin, the short term high interest debt of people in the United States is as low as it's been in forty years or lower. As so a percentage that's like credit cards at a high interest right. rate. So we have and low credit card debt and high savings. There's one exception to this, but generally speaking, mortgages really don't count as debt. That's carrying costs on a house. Now, during the during the uh, great real estate speculation that went on in the mid 2000 in 2005 through 2007, that wasn't true because people were borrowing money uh, in hope of flipping a house, making and, and they would set up payments they couldn't afford to make. That's not going on. Uh, that's not going on at all. As a matter of fact, this, the houses that are being bought as investments right now are generally being bought with cash. Yeah, there's it's near a majority. So it's like uh, 48% of the houses being purchased right now are being purchased with cash. So we don't have a high debt load on the consumer. And the consumer is about 70% of the American economy. So if you're going to have uh, a recession, the consumer really is the driver in whether you're going to have a recession. So the consumers in the United States, the people who are buying stuff and driving the economy, do not have high debt loads. They do not have low savings. So 
these two, those two items are the prerequisites for a major recession. Does that mean we won't get a recession? Well, technically, it's entirely possible that the second quarter, the one we're in right now, of this year, will have a negative GDP. But it will be a technical negative, not a factual negative. What's a technical negative? Uh, if we import more stuff than we export, that subtracts from GDP. Year-over-year uh, -year inflation subtracts from GDP. But if people still have plenty of money and they're still buying things and businesses are not failing and people are not getting laid off, you can say that's a recession all you want to, but it ain't. I like the definition of recession I heard many, many years ago. A recession is when your neighbor loses his job. A depression is and, when you, use, you lose yours? Right. Yeah. That's it. That's, there we go. That's the definition. And I ain't lost my job yet. Well, first, somebody would have to employ me. But yeah. it's really hard to lose your job when you're unemployed. Um, I'm Jake and I structurally are, unemployed. We haven't been looking right. for work for so long. Yeah, According I, to the government, we qualify as being unemployed because we're self-employed. Right. Well, the difference between self-employed and unemployed is purely a state of mind. And, and since we've yeah. lost ours, um, we're not sure what state it's in or right. if it's That's even it. in a state. I think it's in Texas. Yeah. But somewhere in West Texas. At any rate. Anyway, that's the story of the market. We have a question about the household savings rate. And uh, he said that uh, he's heard again and again and again that most families couldn't pay a $400 emergency if they had one. And they're living paycheck to paycheck. There's a, there's a good publication that, that came out in 2021 from uh, the Federal Reserve. In 2013, that was true. In 2013, in an emergency, if, you had, if an emergency came up, the only 50% of the families, a $400 emergency, only 50% of the families in the United States would be able to pay for it out of cash reserves. However, in July 2020, which is the most recent data we have, 70% of American households would be able to pay that $400 emergency. So we, and, and even we've gotten a lot better than, than we were as recently as 2013. It's, it's been steadily rising. Yeah, the, all, the end all of the 2021, period. it was 78%. Now we're at... Uh, you, got, oh, you got something newer than wait I Wait a minute. At the end of 2021, it was 68%. Now it's at 70%. You can see this rise very slow rise of more and more of the population can handle an emergency based on what they have in the bank. So basically we said that households have 62. One of the things we said we have uh, $62,000 is the average household savings position right now, which is amazingly high. And it has been rising for lower income and higher income people uh, at least since 2013, very nicely. Sure, there's 12% of the population that if they had a $400 expense, emergency expense wouldn't know where to get the money. They're, the poor will always be with you, unfortunately. And if people are, have very low education and they just got laid off, they probably are in a world of hurt. And that's something we see in the statistics. It's repeated that if you have less than a high school education and you were unemployed over the last six months, you're less likely to be able to meet a $400 emergency. That's, that seems common sense to me, <laughs> but that is what's being stated. Yeah, and we're at the last minute. So yeah. this is the personal wealth coach, and if you'd like to contact, we do manage investments for people, and if you'd like to contact us off the air, we can be reached voicemail on the weekends, live people answering the phone on the week at 254-947-1111. Or toll-free at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. 
where we have uh, newsletters that you can sign up for or just simply read there. You can listen to radio programs going back lots of years. You can get podcasts there or anywhere else that podcasts are provided. Our contact form is there, but you can also email us directly at jeff and jake at tpwc.com.